This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 26, 2022, and this is episode 291. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, Ontario's having an election next week. We invite friend of the pod, Allison Smith, on to talk about it. And now we have the business case. We know a smidge more about the future of the Royal BC Museum and how we got there. We'll dig into it. First, though, let us know what we should do for our upcoming episode 300. We still have two months to go. We'll lose track of time. July 28th, it'll be coming up on. Get in our Slack at patreon.com slash politicoast and give us some ideas there. Let's jump into our first segment, Wagged by Doug. Well, joining us now on Politicoast is Allison Smith, the co-host of the Wag the Doug podcast, new frequent appearance on Curse of Politics, founder and publisher of Politics Today, which is a huge friend of the pod as you publish BC Today, as well as Queen's Park Today, Parliament Today, and Alberta Today. What else do you do, Allison? You tweet a lot. <laughs> I don't even know what day it is anymore because I've been covering, getting up so early throughout this camp, this election campaign. So it's today. <laughs> it's the 26th of May. Thank you again for doing One this. One week till the vote. Yeah, we'll make sure mm-hmm. to let you go quickly because like you said you need to be up early tomorrow morning to keep talking about this same election this election <laughs> in ontario that seems like it's kind of like all the elections happening across canada during the pandemic like the federal election where nothing really moves and people kind of wonder why we're doing it yeah absolutely and i feel like honestly the media has been almost forced to try to like craft some narrative arc to this election where they're really i mean the basics are that doug ford the progressive conservative leader who pretty famous dude i'm sure most of your listeners have heard of the guy before he's running for his second term and he looks to be a a shoe-in likely most likely for another majority government he's up against the the ndp in ontario became the official opposition in the last election so they're trying to hang on to that. They they want to form government. It does not seem likely that's going to happen. Their leader, Andrea Horvath, this is her fourth time running in the election or running a, a provincial campaign. And it's kind of expected to be her last if this if next Thursday doesn't go to her, go in her favor. Stephen Del Duca, who's a new-ish leader of the Liberal Party, which was Kathleen Wynne was the premier for them. And, and, and she became incredibly unpopular. The, the whole party collapsed back in 2018. So they only have seven seats after being government for 15 years before that. So they're they're trying to rebuild. There's been some polling that shows that that Del Duke is doing better than people thought on the campaign trail. But the the NDPs also they're kind of they're really in a race for second. Andrea's holding support. The the NDP's been really good at fundraising and they have a, a better, I think, better kind of digital and ground game than the Liberals, which might be what kind of gives them the edge when it comes to voting. But really the the story is almost that Doug Ford, he got off scot-free from four years of contentious governing, to say the least, uh, that 
The, uh, he's run a really disciplined campaign. He's avoided the the media at nearly all costs. And it, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like the type of thing that would happen in an election with Doug Ford in it. But that it appears to be the case. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, you, you would figure with someone as uh, infamous and noteworthy for some of his unscripted moments, you, you think there would be more drama in this thing. It's been weirdly stationary through the whole thing like it doesn't seem like they've landed a blow on him so far do you do you have a sense of why that is why nobody seems to have really gone after ford in a way that stuck yeah i mean you kind of have to flash back to last spring when things when the when the second or third wave third wave i guess of covid was happening and it was very bad in ontario things were closed for months hospitals were full like it was a horrible disaster. It was awful. And he kind of had walked us into it. He wasn't, he did things to try to, he, he like infamously shut down, tried to ban playgrounds and let, and let cops basically stop and frisk anyone who leaves their houses. There was massive pushback to that. And I think after that moment, he ended up having to like, he apologized in his mom's backyard, like crying almost. And it was after that, he brought in new advisors and they really professional ones. And they really they said, like, they turned the whole ship around. They're like, you know what, we're not playing games anymore. This is serious. And they started laying a whole groundwork, I think that led all the way up to the campaign that involved lots of checks being sent to people over the past few months, checks to business owners, we're going to get a gas tax cut if he gets elected. And, And they really, it was a very planned and orchestrated lead up to the campaign, which honestly, you have to like give them kudos to they did a very organized job of that. And I think because of that, everything was just laid out on a silver platter before the campaign even started. And that's why we're not seeing a lot of movement and in, in politically because we it's kind of was over before it started, I guess, is, is a phrase for it. And and I think the same advisors I'm talking about that that came in and were able to, and on a lot of cases, keep Ford away from the media. That's really what it's been. There's been periods of time last summer, like during the federal election, for example, last fall, you mentioned they prorogued the parliament and, and just put Doug Ford away <laughs> for that whole election so that he didn't get involved in it. And they've done various versions of that for the past year and a half. So the, the, there's some message discipline has been really drilled into him and he's been able to follow that. So I guess, you know, what the question might be is like, what's that going to look like if he likely does form a majority government again? Like, is are we going to keep this this Doug Ford on a leash or is he <laughs> gonna go back to 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 maybe the bombastic guy that a bombastic and um, guy who who liked breaking things and wasn't afraid of of pissing people off so that'll be interesting to see yeah it's been wild to watch because I think for a while he may have been the least popular premier in Canada or he and Jason Kenney kind of traded roles for that and Kenny maintained his unpopularity, but it seemed like the vitriol simmered down against Doug Ford. But I guess the question I have is, he's he's not a government of one. There There is a cabinet around him. Have there not been scandals? Like, I know the education minister, Stephen Lecce, has had a few scandals both during the campaign, and it felt like even his leadership through the last few years through the pandemic hasn't been particularly well received by parents, teachers, or Ontarians at large, like, 
Are the larger scandals of government not even sticking? No, the answer is no, they are not. And I don't honestly have a good answer for that. Like really good at, I mean, Doug Ford is really good at just batting away any criticism. And they've also kept a very controlled, like I said, controlled media environment around him. But like even down to like how the press conferences operate. I know that NBC, you're um, familiar with the one question, one follow up system. That's like very much the case with Doug Ford, but like, and like maybe four questions at a presser. And throughout this whole campaign, there's probably been 10 pressers, like maybe a couple more than that, not many. And none of the ministers are out doing anything. So if you can't talk to them, they, they or they don't, aren't doing anything except for tweeting some pictures of themselves door knocking. It's there. They've really met, ma- it's a, almost a masterclass of not engaging and, Yes, like the there definitely was plenty of scandal in various like many different things involving pandemic money, involving schools closing, involving online schooling, involving vaccines, like a private companies getting sole sourced contracts to distribute vaccines. Like there's been a lot of stuff, but I think also part of it, I mean I mentioned the opposition leaders, they just have not been able to craft and hammer in any any of these messages. They, they don't, they haven't gotten the public either on their side or they haven't been able to pick. I mean, the liberals, I'd say maybe, or I mean, both of them, they've really spent the, the election campaign presenting their own policies. So like how they would slightly change how a long-term care operates or how they would tax corporations that earn more than a billion dollars a year or something like that, like, which are like good, interesting policies, but there's there's spent a lot more time trying to talk about a really broad swath of stuff as opposed to just Doug Ford is awful because of A, B, and C, or even just A every day. <laughs> I don't know if that would exact I'm no strategist, but it like it seems like if there there had picked something or two things or like the the bad stuff that did happen in this government and we're able to really rally people behind it, we might be having a different campaign, but that just hasn't happened. Okay, so they're not really focused on Doug Ford the person, but it sounds like they are talking about a whole bunch of issues. So kind of what have the main issues that have emerged through the campaign being? Like, what is Ontario talking about during this? Highways. <laughs> the most boring shit you've ever thought about. They're, they want, the PCs are really, are campaigning. Their their campaign slogan is get it done. And that, the translation, that, that translates to, we're going to build a new stuff and we're going to build highways. We're going to build transit. To their credit, they do have a, a good, a transit, solid transit plan and, in the in Toronto proceeding along but it's this one big highway that I call it the road through Caledon that probably means as much to you as like to most people in Ontario because it's really just a highway through uh, farm fields and and all the other parties don't want it and Doug Ford does so they're the party and he's the party of yes like <laughs> this is very it's very base level whereas like issues like housing. I mean, the only thing that everyone's kind of agreed upon on housing is we have to build 1.5 million houses in a decade. It's like, okay, but what about any like right now or (laughs) yesterday or like, what about like that? It's just not, it's a lot of just saying we're going to do stuff (laughs) and hard to say whether it will happen. Yeah. 
it's not been particularly inspiring. I mean, and the PCs, again, I said they laid it out very smartly. They announced all of these hospital plans that they were going to build before the campaign started. They announced schools they were going to build. So they can just, as soon as anybody brings up education is bad, they can just say, well, we're building 200 schools or like the nurses can't, nurses are quitting because they're not being paid enough. Well, we're hiring or building three new hospitals and hiring more nurses. Like the, the, the the crafting of the messaging is just it's working for them. Well, and Ontario's done what I think BC did for a long time, which is you have a fixed election date there, but your fixed election date is conveniently in the spring, so the government gets to table a budget and then just basically run on that budget and say, "Well, if you want all those juicy treats that we just te- dangled in front of you, you have to elect us." And the opposition doesn't have anywhere near the resources to develop anything as robust in terms of a plan or platform from that. But as far as I could tell, beyond the budget that was laid out in the spring, the PCs don't have a platform on their website again. Like we don't even have a buck of beer promises. No, um, no, they haven't done any. And you didn't get buck of beer, did you? We got buck of beer for like a really hot minute but like it was one damn inflation for a while there was one brewery in, in it yeah one brewery in, in etobicoke which is the part of toronto that doug ford's from they started making bucket beer but I, it kind of just seemed like they were doing it like to make him happy and then for a little while you could get do you guys have no name brand like loblaws stuff in british columbia no they have it in alberta but we have like okay yeah black label or some of the like cheap brands yeah so it's like we have products that are just in yellow cans or boxes and they are literally just called no name and it's a, a loblaws thing but they have beer and for a while you could get a four pack of no name beer for four dollars but only on long weekends so <laughs> whatever no but the, the, the what it's i think the inverse of that this time is that we're going to cut the, the gas and fuel tax on july 1st if you elect us so it's kind of the exact same pocketbook <clears throat> type promise that I guess works. I mean, geez, these people know what they're doing. <laughs> they're cruising to cruising to victory. Well, on that path to victory, have there been any kind of notable events that have happened during this? Or is this really being just one of those campaigns where it seems like nothing happens? There's a pretty good one that actually is kind of bubbling up today that, that I thought was pretty interesting. How do I... How do I long story short it? So the liberals, there's a a candidate, a riding in southwestern Ontario called Chatham Kent Leamington. And it's a riding the liberals were like never going to win. They never win in that even area of the province. But they still need to. Yeah, it's out uh, near London, Ontario. And but they wanted to have candidates in every riding because every party obviously does. So they had appointed a, a really young guy. I think he was 18 or something like that to the, to the writing and within like right before the deadline for when the last time, I think it's a week after the campaign starts is you, that's it. You can't, if you don't have a candidate now, you can't have one. So kind of right before that, there's all these attacks. So I think this happens in lots of election campaigns, right? They're trying to to get, try to force part the rival parties to drop candidates. So that was going on. And they they dropped this guy for some old Facebook or, or Twitter posts. Doesn't really matter. So the party, the liberals turn around and they nominate this new candidate within like a few hours. And then all of a sudden they have a new candidate again. Okay, fine. But and so that was all about two or three weeks ago. And since then, you have to get signatures on to become a candidate. I think you had to get twenty five or something like that. Just part of your not your package. <clears throat> The NDP figured out that 
that what it looks like is that the the new candidate just used the old candidate signatures because they didn't have any time because like it literally was down to hours which is a violation of elections law. It's like fraud. So, and they've like confirmed with people on this list that they signed for the first candidate, not the second. So Elections Ontario is investigating. And it got to the point today that that the liberals decide to dump this candidate because it's, it's, there's proof now that this was messy. But then what, what Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader does is turns it around on the NDP and starts calling them sexist for attacking, trying to go after this fraud because the new candidate was a woman. And they they like really are using this sexist like language about sexism in a way that I found very bizarre and, and almost shocking that they would go there. Like they said, the NDP's lost its way by attacking a woman, even though this woman seems to credibly have done fraud and more or less admitted it. So... That is uh, bizarre. And what, I guess what that is also a microcosm of is that the right now we have just the NDP and liberals have almost seemed to have slightly given up on Doug Ford. And now they're just fighting with each other to kind of try to see you know, who can who can make it out in second place. And I, I think I think like strategic voting, that's going to be a part of it because in ridings in Toronto, for example, including the one I live in in Parkdale High Park, we have an NDP provincial legislator, uh, like MPP, but federally it's uh, liberal. So the riding swings both ways. So it, it can be competitive between the two of them. And, and I think especially now that we're leading into the last week, both the NDP and liberals are going to try to convince everyone that like a vote, if you don't vote liberal, then Doug Ford's going to win. Or if you don't vote NDP, like you have to do one or the other to try to defeat Doug Ford. But I think it's going to be tough to make that work because I don't think it matters. <laughs> also, also, did the liberals leak a memo that says they're not going to win anyway? So yeah, and the NDP leaked a memo saying the same thing today. So they're both trying this like strategic vote play. But it's more embarrassing when you're both doing it and through the exact same by both leaking memos to the Toronto well, Star. Well, the Liberals had their <laughs> chicken suit guy try to go crash a Doug oh. Ford event. That was pretty embarrassing. And I think, <laughs> I think I saw a Stuart Press or someone tweet that an iron rule of politics is probably if your team has the chicken suit on, you're probably losing. <laughs> That's uh, a great rule I, of politics. Yeah. <laughs> I've been watching the Battle of Alberta hockey series. Calgary versus Edmonton on CBC streaming. And I've been watching out of Calgary or Edmonton, but they are all Ontario ads placed over it. And so it's all sports bet, online sports betting stuff, which you have the privilege of doing there, thanks to your government. And then there's the occasional political attack ad. And all the political ads have been attack ads. And it's either the PCs going after the Liberals or mm -hmm. the, the the Del Duca win liberals. Yeah, or the <laughs> NDP going after the liberals or the NDP or the liberals going after the conservatives. Like the fact I've seen like multiple liberal NDP going after each other is a little bit, it's just like you largely agree, I think, other than just, I guess it is that strategic voting and those urban ridings where they are competing with one another in Toronto and probably Ottawa and a few other places. Yeah, and they really hate each other, honestly. Like, That's it's true not everywhere, just a show. Those, Yeah, those two parties do not like each other at all. So, but yeah, it's funny. So the, yeah, so they legalized sports betting here. When, what, beginning of April? Oh, I forget. I really did know. I think it was the beginning of April. They, and one of the things that's allowed is novelty betting. 
So you can vote on, I think one of the examples the government had was like the gender of a royal baby, but also you can novelty bet on elections. So I was actually trying to cruise around and see if any, there was like odds on this election on any of these sports betting things. And I couldn't, I didn't get very I know that's a big thing in the UK where they actually use election Mm -hmm. betting as a tertiary marker when polls aren't doing well. They're like, what are the betting markets giving the odds at? Yeah, like I think there, yeah. yeah, I think there are a lot of UK-based ones that even do North American politics, too. I, I've seen a running joke on Twitter about what do the Scottish teens think about whatever election's going on? Yeah, I want to look. I got to look. I, I tried, but yeah, those sports betting sites are very obnoxious to be on. They're not <laughs> a pleasant internet space, so I kind of gave up pretty fast. But I know that... I I have seen one that at least had odds on the US, the next US presidential election. So it does exist a little bit of political betting here, at least. So one thing that did catch my eye from what's been going on there is that Doug Ford's managed to do a somewhat unusual thing for conservative rack up a bunch of labor endorsements. Do you kind of explain what's going on there? And this is something we're kind of seeing a bit in the UK and a few other places, kind of a repolarization or shift in the the labor situation. So what's going on in Ontario there? I think it's seven (laughs) unions now have endorsed the PCs. I think it's important to say they're all building construction unions. So it's like some electricians and boilermakers, which I must concede, I don't know what a boilermaker is, but they, (laughs) they have a brotherhood. And I mean, I think the easy answer is that the, the PCs have planned, have promised to, build a lot of stuff. And that appeals to building <laughs> trades. There's some other comp- more complicated politics. The largest union that that has backed them, Layuna, they really hate Stephen Del Duca and the liberals for a convoluted reason back from 2018. But I think in lots of it's kind of chalked up to the labor minister here doing like a lot of outreach to unions and and kind of apparently really listening to them and like giving a lot of money to skilled trades over the past few years. So again, it's like another, like this one kind of seems like the the politics of what they've been doing at least paid off for the PCs on the labor file. But I mean, again, it's very specific labor that's happy, whereas a lot of the bigger unions, the Ontario Federation of Labor, OPSU, which is the public servants, many others are anyone in like the healthcare sector, like they're not (laughs) endorsing the PCs or anything close. So like really the vast majority of unions aren't endorsing the PCs. They're mostly the teachers, like they're all backing the NDP mostly and maybe a little bit liberals. But I mean, it's still like that is still a, a, a win for for Doug Ford to be able to say that he's done that because I think it's tough to do and we'll see it I think like politically what it does is it gets these building unions they're going to have more of a seat at the table in the next government assuming Doug Ford wins they're going to be at the top of the pecking order and so politically it seems like it's going to work out for both parties but you know at earlier tonight Doug Ford held a, a rally in Hamilton, Steel Town, which is Andrea Horvath's home base, the NDP leader. And they're a steelworkers town, they're a union town. And he's, I think, pretty deliberately stealing her constituencies. I mean, he's not going to win her, like the PCs are going to not going to take Hamilton, but I think he's, 
as much as he's being, how do we say, like fairly demure on the campaign trail, I think he's being, he's been being passive aggressive in <laughs> I think some of the other things he's doing, right? Can't get mad at him for, it's not going to be a story that he, you know, yell and swore or insulted someone, but he's not being shy either about kind of trolling, I think, <laughs> the new Democrats on some of this stuff. What's about it's one of those elections where you're playing offense or defense, and it seems like the opposition is on defense and fighting each other, which is just what he could want. I'm conscious of the time and that it's quite late there and you need to get going. It's probably too big of a question to ask, but one of the things I know that was an issue going into this election was the like tweaking, changing, amending of election spending and campaign financing rules and just the number of things like Am I remembering right that Doug Ford invoked the notwithstanding clause around some of the election financing rules? Yes, but I mean, this again is going to be another example of things they did to benefit themselves before the election, right? To really like lay the groundwork because what it did was what's the easiest, it, it just, it cut down significantly the amount of money, third party advertisers, like the large unions, the teachers unions, for example, are the biggest spenders here. Most of the time, cut down the amount of money they could spend attacking Doug Ford up until the election campaign, which would have meant if they they could have been hammering him on TV a lot more over the, the six months or 12 months before the campaign, then it's hard to say whether the, that would make a huge difference. But third parties can be just as good or better, perhaps as opposition parties at crafting a narrative about why Doug Ford is bad. Actually, I'm interested. You, I, I don't really watch television with commercials in it. Did you, do you see any like f nurses ads or any, teachers ads or anything? Like the only television I've watched are the few hockey games, this series, and I didn't even watch the first series. And there wasn't any of that. Like, Honestly, it was sports betting and then the occasional election ad. It was a lot of sports betting. It was also in the middle of a sports game, so it fits, but <laughs> I don't watch much TV. Not other having that, fun, though. throwing a bet. Get, get this game spicier. But yeah, I mean, I guess uh, to, I don't know how to conclude. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I mean, I, one thing I would say we didn't get to is like the pandemic. I know I mentioned it off the top. I really think my like sociological analysis would be, that that the pandemic really tired everyone out and we really had to think about Queen's Park and the provincial government every day for two and a half years and, and sort of be at their whim. And I think now that that has cooled off and we're in a more chill place, nobody wants to think about Doug Ford or the province like they and, and and I think nobody wants change at the same reason. I mean, the, the the desire for change metric in polls isn't it's actually fairly high. But it's like, I think between 40 and 50%, which isn't that low, considering what we're seeing with the, the rest of the polls. But I think that again, back to the pandemic, like we had a lot of change. <laughs> and it wasn't good. And now that it's stuff's like, not so changed, uh, and feels normal. I think that I think people's actual desire for change might be lower than they say it is comfort in Doug Ford's big teddy bear arms might be what <laughs> everyone's secret Freudian desire right now. <laughs> we all just want to go to a barbecue. With exactly. Them. Yeah, buck a beer. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast here and do a rare dip into another province's politics is because Ontario has a tendency to kind of affect the rest of the country in a way that a lot of the other provinces don't. So is there any lessons and maybe what you just said is kind of the big one that we can draw from this to where the direction of like national politics is going to be going? Apathy? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Nihil- nihilism. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I think back, I think back to the Kathleen Wynne government and they were really serious about climate change and building a cap and trade program and building new retirement pension programs. And like, it was a lot of big government, I guess is what I'm describing. But like, and I I think with the PCs, we're seeing the opposite of that. Like they haven't cut down everything, but there's very little desire to build new stuff or try to create. And I, I, I think that that might be the direction like I feel like there's so little political will for a lot of stuff and I know that get it done and like build is what they mean but like that's only in just like the very literal like concrete sense (laughs) so I I wonder if like that might be a thing like get the government's concepts out of my face but like if you're gonna build a rail line or or a road, I guess. (laughs) Like that might be where the public's going. I don't know. Well, Allison, thank you so much for taking your time this evening. I know you've got a lot going on. Where can people find you if they want to follow you on Twitter and everywhere else? Sure. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at at Queens Park today. You should follow Shannon Waters if you're in British Columbia, though. I'm sure most of your listeners already do. She's our BC Today reporter. And check out Wag the Dog, our our podcast on Canada Land. We're going to have a new episode out on Friday, which might be the same day this comes out. Yeah, should be. Yeah. Yeah. So check out that. Um, Probably talking about some fairly same same stuff, but we have sound effects. That's true. (laughs) We just have an intro tune. (laughs) All right. Have a great night. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, let's move on to our second segment, a case for doing something, maybe. We have the business case, Scott. Are you satisfied? Not really, because I'm left with almost as many questions as I had before. This first off is, why wait this long to release the business case? The uh, the actual document is dated, I believe it's December 2021 on there. They've had it for a while. They knew it was in there. Just the whole sequencing on this thing has been completely baffling. It's a lot. I I don't think this is the level of stuff that's usually released. Like, to be clear, this business case is 109 pages plus, what is this, like 35 appendices, appendices, some of which were redacted, but there's a lot of information here. There's, There's still a lot of information missing, critical stuff, but... This is a lot of detail into the process of government that I don't actually think we usually see at this level. Like, I think the problem is why isn't there a why wasn't a public version produced at any point? I, I think it depends a bit on the project. Like, I can pull up the say Broadway Line subway case and, and have it access to a eighty-five page business case for the new Broadway SkyTrain stuff. So, like, it, it's not unheard of for major capital projects to have business cases released. Most of the time, people don't really expect that they're going to change much. And that is in large part because 
know, a, a business case is not necessarily a comms document, and the fact that they had to get to that point where it had to be uh, hastily used as one is kind of a, a strategic and tactical failure on the NDP's part. So I pulled up the Site C business case right now. It's 52 pages and is noted a business case summary. It's quite graphic or has lots of nice graphics in it versus this Royal BC Museum one looks a little more like it was thrown together quickly in Word, which is what you do for an internal report with some tables pasted in versus there's pictures in the Site C business case. There's no useful tables on the numbers, which is all the stuff they got blacked out. So yeah, where is the public version Maybe not a thousand pages, but 50, 60, 100 pages, whatever summary. We didn't have that. So I guess yeah, they bungled it. it. it yeah. And it's not like every one of the appendices is necessarily going to be able to be poured over in detail. Like I can read through the, the seismic analysis stuff and understand what's going on there, but like most people aren't going to be able to pull through the details and really get the ins and outs of that. So yeah, they, they did definitely kind of push a lot out, but that almost makes what they didn't release more interesting because all the tables with the costing in it in the, the main business case are blacked out as are the discussions around the different labor relations models they're looking at, which were kind of the two big question, well, two of the big question marks. One of them was why settle on this option? And that wasn't as thoroughly discussed in the this business case compared to say finding a new site for the bc museum or just doing uh repair work on that that wasn't as thoroughly analyzed as i think a lot of people would have liked and kind of is one of the big outstanding questions but the other two things that were kind of raised eyebrows were of course the massive price tag and the fact that the ndp were exempting this from the usual community benefits agreement that they force every other project to go through and I think if you were wanting answers on both of those, you're kind of left not really having them. Let's start on the latter bit first, or I want to dig into that a little bit. There is a section analyzing three different approaches to labor procurement for this. There's a provincial labor agreement, there's the community benefits agreement, or there's basically, forget what it calls it, I don't have it in front of me, but just like, let whoever can work for it, work for it. And they ultimately come down on a PLA, a provincial labor agreement, rather than a CBA, and they redact out all of the fun, why would we go that route rather than the CBA. But you can kind of see in the comparison table that isn't blacked out that the PLA will still require union membership rather than getting its labor employed and supplied by the BC Infrastructure Benefits Corp. Operation, it'll go through contractors and unions and subcontractors. I th so my read on it is that it's flexibility. It's that I think they may have said, all right, the BC Infrastructure Benefits Inc. doesn't have the capacity. We don't know that for sure. But that's what I can read between the blacked out lines in that. So, And I can get why elements of labor agreements, especially ones that haven't been signed, are being redacted by the government in advance because you can weaken your negotiation standpoint if you say we've budgeted for this wage and suddenly they come back, oh, well, I guess we can ask for a percent or two more than that rather than start from a percent or two less. So 
I'm not mad that there are some redactions. The questions are which ones are justified versus which ones are political. And that we can never know, really. There is an interesting thing that Melanie Mark, actually, who's the minister responsible for this, tweeted out kind of justifying this. And this came from the 2018 report, but there are extrapolated costs that she highlights in there. And it's a comparison of five different options that was considered in 2018. Option one being the status quo, just keep things running. And that would be still about $60 million in construction in 2018 money, $89 million today. Uh, to replace on a new site would cost $811 million in today's money. Replacing on the existing site is what they chose as option three. It says $893 million. It's the middle of the road option in the end, takes four years to construct. That ends up being slightly higher than the amount they announced. We've not been able to figure the math out on that, but I guess there's a pay payback or something in there. Option four would be to revitalize the existing museum. And that would be just short of a billion dollars and take six years. And option five is just fully repair it. That would take seven years and cost 1.1 million because of all of the lead, asbestos, and crumbling walls. So at least that kind of trade off shows that there was multiple options considered at one point, at least in 2018. And it seems like the business case built off all right, we're going to replace on the existing site. What does that mean? How do we do it? Now, that's going to take four years of construction, but before we do that, we have to get everything out of the museum. That'll take a while because it's fragile artifacts. And some of the totem poles, I believe, will have to like, they'll have to take a wall out to get them out because they're very large. So there are complications in there. Yeah. And that's one of the things that comes out in this report as well is that these repatriation efforts that Adam Olson and some have been critical of are being impeded by the state of repair of the museum and the size of it and its just layout. Like they're not able to do the, the, or do the ceremonies in the way that they deserve to be done. Now, I'm sure you could come back and argue that they could do them if they really tried, but at least here they are flagging that is an opportunity with the new museum. And then after you've taken all the stuff out, you can start tearing the building down. That'll take a little while because you don't want asbestos flying all over the legislature. And then you can break ground on the new one, which conveniently will happen a few months before the next election. Which also means there's going to be a, a hole in the ground for Kevin Falcon to stand in front of, which might not be the uh, the ideal visual they'll want going into that election, but we'll we'll see on that. The repair option was interesting because I was reading through the 2018 seismic structural report on it, and they actually budget out the uh, seismic repairs that coming in at about... Uh, 130 million, significantly less than the rebuild option to bring it structurally up to current codes. So the fact that it ends up being the more expensive option in the table comparing the various options is curious and not entirely sure why that's the case, particularly because the removing all the hazardous materials would have to be done in pretty much all of these cases, which is kind of what you would expect the other big source of cost to be on that. And yeah, doing it inside of an existing building rather than as teardowns going to be more expensive, but seems unlikely it would be that much more expensive to push it over the billion dollar mark. 
There are a lot of documents here, to be fair. I haven't read them all, especially digging into the 2018 comparisons and concept plans. So I'm not going to stand and criticize or defend the numbers that they put there, just kind of present them as they stand. The summary does come down that the total capital costs of this museum, as they've imagined, it will be $774 million. And they say this will be shared between the province and the Royal BC Museum Philanthropy Society, but they've redacted what that proportion will be. And I think that's partially dependent on the society's fundraising, which their plan is also redacted, which fair enough, it's a standalone society. I think the other thing that was really interesting to note in here is the museum we're going to get isn't that much bigger. Like it does end up being a bit bigger in gross area. It ends up being about 20, 25% bigger. Uh, but it's not like we're getting a double sized facility for the price tag. It'll be nicer and many of the exhibits and gallery rooms will be able to fit exhibits as noted in the report that weren't able to come here like a big blue whale skeleton. So that'll be good. Yeah, we've really lost out on that coming from the uh, Royal Ontario Museum because none of the existing elevators were big enough to fit a whale skull through. And so, I mean, overall, I think the takeaway from this and I think Richard Zussman or Rob Shaw tweeted out, retweeted someone else's previous comment on the idea of a releasing a business plan is no one's opinions are ever really changed by the release of a business plan. Like if you were predisposed to dislike this project prior to this document, you will probably still question it because this doesn't answer every possible question. Some stuff is redacted why not go smaller is always kind of the question that will remain. I will note somewhere in there, I also saw like there was a 2020 option that then got smaller in 2021, as they noted, fiscal constraints were starting to have an effect. And I don't know how much money that saved them as well. But yeah, if you didn't want a museum before or didn't want a billion dollars going into a museum before, this doesn't really justify it. And if you did think it was justifiable, you'll find some stuff in here that goes, okay, that all makes sense. And if I was in government, I probably would have made the same decision. There's information there, but it also leaves as many questions as you had or more. Yeah. Like the, the whole sequence on this has been just a mess. The communication has been terrible and it just, like I said, fu fundamentally doesn't get to the core problems in place here on what those are, or kind of, not the core, the core questions on there. We're no real closer to doing it, particularly why the costs are so much higher than other museum projects over the last decade or so. So yeah, all in, I don't think this is going to satisfy anyone on this, and it's going to, I think, continue to be a weight around the government's neck. One thing I found interesting that was also dredged up yesterday by author and journalist Tom Hawthorne is he found 2010 clippings from the Victoria Times columnist, and we'll put this thread in the show notes, where the Royal BC Museum was talking about demolishing and rebuilding the museums back then, and they would need rezoning from the city of Victoria. But buried in there, they talk about building a new museum would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. They hadn't released a financial plan at that point. And it was kind of pitched as a bold vision McLean Kay wrote a column saying it was a great idea and we should push forward on it. I don't actually know what McLean has said on the current plan. 
yeah, he hasn't been too commented much because his uh, new job, I guess, taken him out of the uh, commentary oh, yeah. game, so to speak. But yeah, because he's no longer with the Orca. But yeah, it's kind of funny. I think, it, yeah, looking at the history really goes to show how, yeah, how just presenting similar projects in different ways can really make a pretty big difference. And it sounds like less information was given then, but I guess they hadn't like greenlit it as. Famously, we don't have a new museum by now, and in the intervening 12 years, costs have unsurprisingly gone up. We did get a new roof for BC Place in that time, though. Well, moving on to Quick Tates, a story we didn't uh, manage to cover last week, but wanted to touch on, because I, I believe it is fairly important, was the federal government's announcement that they have decided, finally, after way in this decision for what feels like half a decade at this point, decided to ban Huawei as well as uh, another firm, ZTE. Don't know them. From having their equipment installed in Canadian telecom networks. So this follows similar decisions from several years ago now from the US and the rest of the Five Eyes countries against insolvency. Oh, technology over security concerns, considering the closeness of Huawei, ZTE, and the Chinese government and security services, as well as they're also requiring all 4G equipment previously installed to be removed and by no later than December 31st, 2027. I don't know, that seems like a long time. Like, I get this isn't easy to unplug and, like, pull an off-the-shelf piece that go into it, but, you know, if it's a security concern, five and a half years seems like a long time to resolve that. I wonder if there are existing relationships and corporate deals that they determined it's easier to just, like, let these pan out and maybe all the 4G networks will be replaced by that I, like i don't know why that that date is so long i don't know why it took them so long because this seemed inevitable yeah like th this is the biggest curiosity on is like why did it take the government years to make a fairly obvious decision and that kind of everyone was like why haven't you made this decision yet freaking ndp criticized them for it yeah it's just our allies criticized us for it. like there, there was no benefit to dragging this out so long like if they could have provided a reason i'd be open to hearing it i'm curious why not do it other than just you're bad at governing which may be the case or maybe there it's a that's it's my only suspicion it's based on nothing is that it is tied to existing contracts but speaking of sanctions and international money being pushed around christian freeland has a new idea for the sanctions of Russian oligarchs, which is to let them buy their way out of the sanctions and then take all of that money and just give it to Ukraine to rebuild. It's a bold strategy. It's an idea we just saw floated earlier today, just before we started recording. And I just had to bring it up because it's weird. It's kind of like, all right, we have a bunch of taxes that we are applying to you that we think are justified. But you know what? If you just give us a bunch of money, we'll stop putting these penalties on you because you, it's, is it like bail? Like I'm trying to figure out an analogy here for how this is consistent with rule of law in any way. It's weird. It, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. 
I, it, it seems to be a bit of a kludge more than anything else. Maybe it'll go nowhere. It is just an idea she's floated for now, but... Although a surprising number of ideas she just floated have turned into uh, Western policy over the last three months, so who knows. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.